Hey there, Chop Shop fans, Dr. Spider here. Over the past few weeks, we've heard all kinds of yammering about how important it is to make our kids go back to school in America in spite of the raging COVID pandemic. Everyone from business leaders like Bill Gates to uh, political leaders like Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos have asserted it would be worse for the students if they remained home and engaged in distance learning or other alternatives than it would be to force them to go back to school and risk their lives and the lives of their families. Today, we sit down. I'm sitting down with two public school teachers, one from California a so-called blue state that, even though it's been getting it right, still botched the reopening. And another from Utah, a place usually held up as the stereotypical red state. They will share a perspective. We will be giving you their perspectives today, one that the rest of the media tends to leave by the wayside. Uh, my name is Olivia. I'm a teacher in Central California. I teach high school history, um, and I'm also a union representative for my district. So recently, we've been seeing a lot of stuff coming out in the news, uh, calling for reopening schools and getting kids back into the classrooms by this fall. Like we seen like Betsy DeVos saying that the psychological harm of kids being out of class is worse than like the damage that COVID would do from sending them back and even like the White House press secretary saying the science can't get away in the way of students going back to school. Um, like what's your just like initial reaction to all of this? Like in this time of COVID? Uh, my... <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually pretty disgusted by the way uh, Betsy DeVos specifically has dealt with this because I was under the impression that she didn't care at all about students' mental or physical health based on the policies that she already has um, attempted to push through her position. And the I just, the audacity to suggest that teachers who don't want to go back to campuses right now are somehow being selfish and not caring about students because uh, the first thing you'll hear teachers talk about during this whole pandemic has been how are we going to help kids how are we going to teach them despite how are we like how can we rise to this occasion and Betsy DeVos hasn't done anything to be helpful um, teachers value students' lives more than they do their abilities in school right now. Teachers are trained to help students who have deficiencies to meet mastery levels, to uh, the goal of teaching is to reduce that gap of learning from what they actually know um, between what they actually know and what they currently know or uh, need to know. And so Teachers are already trained to do this and to suggest that we don't care about our students is the farthest thing from the truth. Um, 
students all over the world are getting sick and they're getting COVID and those students are then taking it home and they're infecting their grandparents and they're infecting teachers. And, you know, I would have to ask Betsy DeVos, how many teachers are you willing to let die? And that's my biggest takeaways. It's like, really, I mean, how many people are, is it okay for us to die for a job? Uh, has there been like any sense of like direction or like any kind of plan for like both for like the schools in your area as well as just sort of generally that you've seen that's unfolding in all this? Yeah, so my school district has a school board that voted on what we were going to do next year. And luckily our school board has two former teachers on it, which helps a lot. And they voted for distance only learning for the first quarter and then to reevaluate from there based on numbers, which is good because recently in California, the superintendent of schools and the governor made it very clear that schools cannot reopen if they're on a watch list, if the county that they're in is on a watch list. And the county that I am in has had positive, like has had an increased rate for the last month of COVID. And so, um, shockingly, our school board voted to go distance only. I didn't think that they would vote that way. Just based on, they were the last, my school district was the last district, one of the last districts in California to close schools. We were even, the governor called us out as being one of the last districts that had stayed open. So luckily the reopening plan for us right now looks like teachers going onto campuses uh, with no students and teaching on Zoom and on online learning platforms like Canvas, Google Classroom, and that our students will be checking in and it'll be like a regular school day. They'll just be at home. So there's a lot of questions and not a lot of answers, uh, but I do know that I will be home. Well, I, I won't be home, but I know my students will be home. Um, has there been any like additional supports for like say for parents um, who are now going to have their kids home fairly like to a much greater degree than they normally would um, or like anything that you've seen to help with you know because this is not going for like a shift to the distance learning that's not going to be something that's going to be necessarily easy especially for parents who have to work in essential jobs. Yeah, so for example, teachers right now, they're not going to be able to take their kids to campus with them and their kids are going to have nowhere to go. Or people whose parents are hospital workers or grocery store workers. Um, and that's a huge issue right now. We don't really know how to solve it. It's like we, we solved one big problem, which was whether or not they were going to stay home or go to school. And now we have this next problem, which is that not only do we not have parents, well, not only do we have parents who are not really supervising their kids because they're working, we also have a lack of technology access, a lack of internet access, and we have families who don't normally spend as much time together spending time together, which is really hard, especially for my students that I know come from homes that are less than positive. Um, I'm also the Gender and Sexuality Alliance advisor at my school, and those students, my LGBTQ students, are the ones that I worry about the most, 
because they already struggled. And I mean, they, you know, some of my students are getting mental health services at school. They're getting food services. They're getting clothing. Sometimes they're getting all, almost all of their emotional support from school. And so that's a part that we worry a lot about and we're trying to problem solve. Um, but I don't think there people have come up with good solutions yet. Uh, parents are allowed to come to campus every single day to pick up food for their, their kids. Um, that's one thing that we've done and to pick up resources and to get help, but it's a struggle. I've had parents call me at the end of last school year crying because they just don't know how to, they don't know how to help their kid. Um, and just like adults right now, they're suffering from, you know, mental distress because of this pandemic. Yeah, and it's, so let, let's say, ideal, like, ideal world, what would be, like, sort of, if, like, you know, someone gave, um, like, the state of California a blank check, and teachers were and parents were given basically like total like free reign to figure out a policy that could actually work and at least help address these things what might that look like um you mean between uh like, parent involvement yeah and like uh and ev like anything else that could make any of the like the transition to a remote learning base easier for like for teachers for students and for parents yeah i you know what i'm gonna be completely honest and say that i i don't have a simple answer for that because um it's a really complex issue that we we already had a very challenging time with family involvement on campuses all over my district as uh, really low family involvement. And so to make the situation even more challenging now with the pandemic, I think a lot of our counselors on campus are working really, really, really hard to be able to meet the needs of students and their families from a distance, uh, contacting them frequently. We have now, I do know that um, all of our instructional aides and teacher's assistants are now going to be working on a special team to contact students who teachers haven't heard from. That way it's not all on the teachers because teachers are having to do twice as much work right now. Um, and so it allows those students to not kind of fall through the cracks and to make sure that parents know what's going on. But really, it, it, it requires a lot of communication. Um, and communication is hard right now. So I don't have a simple answer for that. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. But it's just such a complex issue that I guess right now, with so many unknowns, I'm really focusing on my little bubble of what I can control. And what I can control right now is making sure that the instruction that I provide for my students next year is as close to the classroom as I possibly can. And so that's what I've been focusing on. I know that there's a lot of people in my school district who are focusing on family involvement, participation with the community and how to kind of bridge those gaps in an online environment, but I'm not personally working on those. What has been going on in the teachers' union around all of this? 
Uh, and what, um, like, both, like, where you're at and from what you've been hearing? Jenna. So, from a union member perspective, just as a person who interacts with the union, uh, more people have made requests to speak to their union rep or to get information from their union rep than ever that I've been a union rep. So I have people on that last week of school before we school shut down for us, I was out of my classroom almost every single period dealing with a union issue because a lot of people don't know their rights. Um, they don't know the contract. And um, so union, the union members have been working really hard to make sure that we know what the contract says. We know what our rights are. And then trying to listen to members to see like what, what we think is good and what we think is not effective. And so, um, for example, when the school board was coming up to vote about whether or not we're going to go back to campus, the union sent out a, a survey through uh, Google Forms to ask people, you know, it gave them, we gave them a whole bunch of options for different ways next fall might look and let people vote. And then we presented that information to the board and they picked the solution that we offered. And so I feel like our union was very effective um, at pushing for the, the steps and the actions that its members wanted. And this school board listened, which doesn't always happen with school boards. Um, and additionally, I mean, we're still negotiating. So the school, the school board voted to go all distance, but the way that we're going all distance, what that means for teachers and their leave, what it means for teachers if say I, we go back in say November and the students all come to campus and I, I come in contact with a student who tests positive. What does that mean for my sick time? What does that mean for my leave? Am I gonna have to go on basically use my disability insurance? Because in California, teachers don't get social security. Um, there's so many issues that the union right now is trying to negotiate so that we can really advise members on what to do. Because right now it's this weird area where the normal rules don't really apply. Uh, and some of them apply, but some of them don't. And there's not really easy solutions. And so the union has been very, very vigilant at uh, on the local and at the state level to pressure administrations and school boards to make the right choices for teachers and students. What do you think we, like, blah, 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 sorry. Um, so sort of like looking forward to like say thing as uh, school, like school is reopening in the sense of at least in your district and in most of California at a distance in some places they are, there are like local officials are pushing for a full reopening as well as state officials. I mean, what do you think people should expect in the first like say month? after school starts again. In terms of what, what do you mean? What should they expect? Like just uh, with, your question. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Like what, what do you think would be likely to happen as far as like, like experience of like students in uh, these different learning environments, as well as like say what might happen in the districts that are not pursuing re remote operations at this time? 
Um, so on my campus, what's going to happen is students are going to have this very weird and unique time where they start classes for the first time without knowing their teachers or a lot of their peers, which is going to be weird, but they're going to be safe. And I think that that's what the most important part of this is. Um, my school district, for example, voted that we're going to vote again on when we're going to have students back. And so this isn't like no forever. Where the campuses, uh, not many of them will be in California, but elsewhere, for example, I know a teacher in Ohio who was just talking to me about how they're starting school in September 100%. All the students there and everything. And she's pregnant and very worried about her health. And honestly, in those situations, as a person who's a classroom teacher, I generally have about 40 students in my classroom and I can barely walk in between the desks, barely. Like I, I avoid it if I can, because I barely can fit in between them with as many students I have in my room. There is no way that schools are gonna be able to operate normally. And if they have less students at, in each classroom, it means they're gonna have to have more sections in the schedule, which means more teachers will be working extended day or they'll have to hire new teachers, which means more money for the districts. And so if you're looking at it from a health perspective, more people are gonna get sick, that's just science. And anyone who disagrees with that is not uh, is not educated on the science behind this. And if you're looking at it economically, it's going to be incredibly expensive for schools to operate. They have to sanitize the desks every two days, at least, in, from what I read. They have to hire more custodians. They have to have multiple lunches. They're going to have to have more bus routes because students can't sit next to each other on the bus. I mean, I can't even imagine how much money it's going to cost. Uh, and I, I mean, I can't imagine why a school would want to remain open right now, given all of those factors. What do you think is motivating these, like the thinking in these districts that are still trying to go back to what, as you're saying, would be incredibly expensive and incredibly dangerous for everybody involved? Like, why do you think they're rushing to do this? Uh, I have three, three suggestions that I've thought about. One is that they really care about the mental health of their students and the, and, and the learning that's happening and they think the distance learning isn't good. And so they want to go back for that reason. And I think that that there are some people that that really is their reason. I don't think that it's a, I don't, I personally obviously don't think that it outweighs the lives of people that could be lost. But that's their thinking is that they're thinking about the students like I am who are at home home in abusive households who don't have access to the internet, who struggle in a normal classroom to be able to pay attention, let alone when they're at home and they have their cell phone in their hand. Um, but I think that the other two reasons outweigh that. I think one of it is political, um, that there are a lot of people that, in that are in education that are not very uh, progressive, so to speak, and they tend to um, vote more on the conservative side. That happens a lot. There are a lot of upper middle class white teachers who tend to, for example, in my district, those uh, teachers or parents want to do it because it's a political statement, because this pandemic has become politicized. And the third reason is that school districts are getting a lot of pressure from parents because parents don't know what to do with their kids during this time. They just don't know. 
And so because they don't know, they're saying, I'd rather have my kids at school because the last handful of months has been really hard. Uh, which I, I think that that's a legitimate concern. I just don't think that it outweighs the lives of people. Um, but I think that those are the three main reasons. Uh, I'm sure that there are other reasons why, that people feel this way, but those are the three I've heard the most. And what would you, what would be like your recommendations for parents who are in districts that are going to be remote? Like what are things that parents and like say communities can do to both like, you know, help like adjust to now having the kids home all the time and supporting them in the new learning environment as well as like sort of help each other out. Like what are things communities could do to better adjust? Yeah, so I would say that the biggest thing that parents can do right now for students is be present as much as possible, um, which is challenging in and of itself. But our students and the students that I've heard from who've contacted me, because a lot of my students have kept in contact with me, they're really lonely and sad and afraid, and they really want someone to tell them that everything's going to be okay. And when, when teenagers, especially, that's what I teach, when they're afraid, they don't work well. They don't, they, they, their critical thinking is not as um, forefront on their, in their brain. They're, you know, thinking in like crisis mode. And so if parents can really think about the mental health of their kids and be present with them and notice any changes and try to get help if they notice changes. I think that will do a lot, um, go a lot, a long way, uh, because students whose parents aren't involved in general just do worse. And like checking to see what your kid is actually doing in their classes, asking them about their work is more important than ever because an important skill and an important way of learning is to hear and to talk about it with other people. And they won't really be able to do that in the same way. Um, and it's just really important that we all come together to support students right now. And that means sometimes even understanding that like maybe today your kid needs a sick day because they can't, they can't do the work. Um, and communicating that with the teacher so that the teacher can be helpful. The more parents and students, and families and, you know, foster care parents or grandmas or grandpas or whoever is in this kid's life, the more parental guardians and teachers and students talk to each other, the better kids, the better kids are. Um, and that's what's really important right now is making sure that, you know, this is not going to be a regular school year. It's not. And we have to be realistic about that. Be realistic about your expectations for your own student and for your own children. Uh, and what, uh, rec like, wh what would you recommend for, like, say, anyone who is in a district that is thinking of reopening? Like, what would your recommendation be to parents and students and teachers that are looking at a potentially very dangerous situation? Call your union. That's what I always say. Because a union is so important, and that's their job. Um, I guarantee you that this, the way my district voted would not have happened if it wasn't for my union. Um, and people have to speak up. Like if you're a teacher who doesn't like what's going on, speak up. 
if you are in a school district, for example, where some students are going to be at home and some students are going to be on campus, which is how some schools are going to do it, and you're at risk of catching COVID or someone you live with is, speak up um, and know your rights. Know your contract because the administration you work for, the school you work for, the district you work for, yes, they work for students, but they also work and it has to do with money. And if they can swindle you in whatever way they can, they will. And that's their job. And so it's your job as a teacher to know your rights and to know who you can call if you're confused about that and to fight for yourself, advocate for yourself. Because right now it seems like teachers are the only people advocating for teachers. Um, and that's scary for teachers. And so band together um, because there's no way that if you're feeling frustrated that you're the only one. I think teachers should strike in some school districts, honestly. If I was at a school district where they were demanding that I come to school from 7.30 to 3.30 with 40 kids in my classroom, just like it was any other school year, I would, I would like ask the union to strike. Yeah, and, and it's not like there's not plenty of reason to strike already. Um, no, we striked over less. <laughs> um, and I think that might happen in some school districts. I, I honestly am hoping that people, um, as it seems like we're, I read on the news or saw heard on the news today that, uh, I think it was Fauci was saying something like, you know, people keep looking at the future going, oh, what's gonna happen with the second wave? What's gonna happen with the second wave? Well, we're not even done with the first wave yet. We're not even done with the first wave. And so inevitably things are gonna get worse if we go back to campuses. And my hope is that when things start getting worse, school districts that remained open will immediately close to protect their students and their teachers and their families. Um, and I'm just really hoping for that because otherwise, I mean, you're just, it's like a Petri dish. We shouldn't be arguing over Zoom for whether or not students can come back to campus. Like the, the audacity of that is what really blows my mind. Yeah, like the Orange County um, Department of Education, like doing exactly that. Yeah, my school district did that. They, are, they were on Zoom, they had to wear a mask. Nobody was allowed to make public comments unless they called into the Zoom meeting, which was challenging because you had to do it ahead of time. It wasn't like a, you know, a normal situation. And so those people on the school board are afraid to be around each other because they could contract COVID and they don't want the public there yet. They expect teachers and cafeteria workers and custodians and administrators and students to continue to go to campus. Um, that's just, I mean, asinine. So, yeah, it's just so, it, it's, it's the same kind of thing if we'd seen all these people saying we want you to go out and die so we can get the stocks up or something. It's... Exactly. That our lives are a sacrifice that we should be willing to make for the economy. And that's the way people talk to teachers. And that's something that frustrates me a lot. And 
I live in a very conservative town and I've heard a lot of people make that comment that like teachers, what are you doing? Do you want to ruin the economy? And it's like, I'm, I didn't know that I should be expected to die on the sword of capitalism because I'm a teacher, because I'm a public servant um, who gets paid underpaid by the way uh, to expect that of people or, and the people who work at Walmart and the people who work at Amazon and the people who work at 7-Elevens, I mean, all of those people right now are putting themselves at risk for minimum wage. And for, a, you know, and we haven't had a second COVID relief package yet. And yet we're still expecting people to, the, the, to continue working and practice these safety measures in schools that are almost impossible to do. I can't even imagine teaching a kindergarten class of let's say 20 kindergartners where you're expecting them to wear masks. Like that, I, I, I can't, can't even get my class. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine what that would look like. That like substitute, I substitute taught that a couple of times and that was difficult under normal circumstances. I don't even want to picture what that would be like now. I I don't either. Um, it's it's very clear in these in these kind of conversations what people value and hey you know i'm not someone who's like you know let's just destroy the economy blow it up you know uh obviously and when we're talking about whether or not we should close schools you better believe that the first person i'm thinking of are those parents who already work three jobs who are essential workers who will not be able to be at home with their kindergartner when they start their zoom class at 8 a.m like i don't know how to solve that problem i really don't um and it's scary but i also want that kindergartner to not get sick and i want that kindergartner's grand grandma to continue to live because no matter what a, no one should have to die for their job absolutely especially yeah, especially in a job where that was never the expectation that I die, that I'd be willing to die. Um, and I mean, this is the second time in my career that I've had to talk about, you know, whether or not I'd be willing to die for my job. And the first is when people started talking more about school shootings, you know, that somehow there's an expectation that as a teacher, you should die for your students. And this is just the second time, second reminder that people think that if you're a teacher, you're, you should be expected to sacrifice everything, everything for your students. And I, I, I do sacrifice a lot for my students. I spend a lot of time outside of the classroom to make the classroom a welcoming environment, to make sure the curriculum I teach is research-based and, you know, is appropriate for the historiography, is up to date and i mean to ask more of teachers right now is just it's just too much it's asking too much absolutely and it yeah so the uh thank you again it was great having you on yes thank you for having me this is uh, really fun. Sorry if I'm rambling a bit, you know, all of us feel like in this world of COVID, I feel like that we're talking to people less and uh, I got a little heated there, but it's because it's so important that people really listen to the voice of the people who are going to be impacted by this, which is kids. 
and teachers and families and not politicians and school board members and the guy on Facebook. Um, i Derek Varn. I'm a teacher in Utah and uh, a few other things, but as far as you guys are concerned, I'm a teacher in Utah. Um, and what, just what's your sort of like immediate, was your immediate reaction when you heard like DeVos and then like that White House press secretary um, saying, um, there's going to be the clip about um, the science can't get in the way of people going back to school. It's like, what was like sort of your reaction when you first like heard that? I wasn't terribly surprised. I mean, one, if you look at the logistics of how this is happening, the attempts to follow um, the original CDC guidelines have been pushed back on in a subtle way for a while at the state level. Um, at our state, there was, there was basically a school board directive saying that we could not follow the policies that the state itself had written. Um, but that was not made public until... Uh, a few days before the Trump administration doubled down in its announcements. And that's the same is true in Georgia and the same is true in Florida. Um, and these states are all in the red zone for over 100 new cases per 100,000 a day, even adjusting for increased testing, which means massive increase in infectivity rates. Um, so I wasn't surprised. I also, frankly, um, and this opinion is a little bit... Uh, um, more radical than a lot of teachers feel. I mean, I, I, I think some of the fear that teachers feel right now is justified if they're at risk. And I'm, I'm a high risk category myself, but um, some of the fear is slightly politicized, but it, it's impossible to make a rational calculus on it. The, 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 the issue that I actually don't see enough people talking about, including parents themselves, is that the children, while, you know, even if DeVos is right with the 0.02 deaths number, that's, that's over, I think, 15,000 public school children, or four, it's over 14,000 public school children who will die. Um, but let's just say, you know, for the hard reality of statistics is that 0.02% would have died eventually anyway um, from COVID. What is not dealt with is the fact this is going to accelerate community spread. Um, dramatically and um, what would that look what do like? i mean by that well even yeah. well it i mean what you have in my state the average class size is 40 right um so if we if we do better ventilation and wear ppe there's still no way to socially distance it took our governor um going against his state legislature to, for a mask mandate because for some reason asking people to wear a mask in school was going too far for a lot of parents. As was, um, we had parental pushback from uh, uh, um, on testing for fevers as well. Um, part of that is interesting to me because um, it's actually a very small um, category of people that we deal with um, and 
but they're very loud and very litigious and they tend to be, you know, um, slightly whiter and upper middle class, frankly. Um, and so the school boards were not going to mandate masks to avoid them, you know, to avoid that here. The, I was laughing because, you know, they're like, they're going to sacrifice for the, us for the economy. I'm like, they're going to sacrifice us to, to, you know, not have to deal with some parents, much less the economy. <laughs> um, so, so of course, like these, these decisions are made, not even with, with general public policy in mind. I think recently, I mean, it's today, 52% of the population still feels like it's too early to completely open schools, but most states are going to do it. The reason why is despite like this, this whole um, neoliberal assault on public school infrastructure and, you know, charter schools and online schools and all that being pushed is everyone really knows and they've now said it out loud that that was never intended for everybody because for the poor, this is really about daycare so that, so that people can go back to work and you can have a, you know, you can have a replenished workforce. Now this probably won't work honestly, because once this community spread hits, it's going to hit those communities. Then I mean, it's going to hit teachers hard too, but it's going to hit the community harder than the teachers because let's say I'm in a room of 40 kids and yeah, I'm exposed and I teach four classes a day, um, eight different, uh, seven different classes in two days In two days. That means I'm exposed to about 220 different kids. All right. Now, if I have to take a, if I have to take a three day quarantine, every time I'm, every time a kid is exposed, um, I'm going to miss all the time. I'm, you know, I'm going to be in, in testing quarantine constantly. We already know that. And the schools don't really know how to handle that. But beyond that, I have PPE, all right, and I have policies to go through. But let's say my my um, my student, and I, if I was a parent, is an asymptomatic spreader, comes home, has no symptoms themselves, passes it to my family. Since we're poor and not able to use the online schooling programs effectively, um, we're probably in a multi generational household, so it's even likely to go to my grandparents, which means that this is going to be highly counterproductive. Ironically, a lot of the people who are fighting the mask mandates were also people who have jobs that enable them to stay home. So a lot of them are also going to homeschool their kids. So in a way, for, for me, like my more radical stance on this is this is actually kind of a form of class warfare. I mean, it's going to spread this amongst the more vulnerable populations faster well-off populations have means to avoid it. That's, and what kind of like, I'd imagine like the, the school districts and like state authorities are going to have to offer at least some kind of like fig leaf policy to justify, don't worry, everything's going to be safe. Like what are they mandating? Like specifically well, like above and beyond so the handle? What's that we're already in a huge spike. Um, depends on the, the school district. So in my school district, that was all, that was all donated, run down to the state. My school district took a compromise position. Um, we are letting at-risk people apply. In fact, I'm supposed to apply sometime today by lottery, basically to work for their increased online capacity. Cause a lot of the, a lot of the parents are sending their kids 
online if they have means they are my district is is mixed um is mixed uh low income and high income actually because the way it's drawn and so i predict a lot of the high income students are going to just not go into school they'll use our online programs or they'll go into private programs um this like at risk so sign up for online capacity thing this like this sounds almost like a death lottery yeah kind of because they don't they don't know how much they need is and their your ability to walk to, to work for online capacity is that or take a year off on paid leave and that's that was what that was the options we were given you know, we were told if we do go in, we will get additional PPE, but we haven't been told what that is. Um, we had our budget cut by 6%, which is not actually that bad. States like Georgia and Florida had theirs cut by like 25%. Um, Florida actually, before it announced that it was mandating and schools open, cut its cut the major funding and programming for, for their online education. Um, so you know, it was, a, it was done to save money. Um, so they're trying to use CARES money uh, to, to buy PPE. So plexiglass for the teachers, um, face shields, um, and hand sanitizer. We have no idea how far that's going to go, though. I mean, if we, um, we also will close one day a week for a deep cleaning, but as you know, the virus only survives for 48 hours anyway, so that's not really going to be that helpful. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, and that was, that was our compromise position. A uh, school district in an even more infected area in the state, right next to ours, um, also spread low-income, high-income. Um, catered completely to the high-income parts um, and has no once there once the teachers do both online instruction and in-person instruction they promised no general ppe only ppe at risk and you either took the ppe at risk or you um went home and until the governor mandated it for both school districts at risk teachers could not mandate students wear masks in their classroom wow so yeah the <laughs> And there, and if you if you think this is solely a red state blue state issue, rural districts in California have been saying the same things. So what it's taken? Um, what what kind of like reaction yeah, have you been seeing from other teachers to this? Like as what especially as a lot of teachers a right are like making wills. Well, a lot of teachers have been talking about making wills and stuff. I, to some degree, I, I, and I don't want to sound like a scab on this because I'm not. I do think that's a little bit hyperbolic. Um, but, you know, if you're an, an older teacher with a comorbid condition, there is a one in a hundred chance you don't survive, you know, and, and depending on what the comorbid condition is, it could be a one in 20 chance you don't survive. Um, the other problem is we like, unless you have banked a lot of day and depending on the state you're in, you can't bank days um, or the district, but in my state, you, you sometimes can, but unless you banked a ton of days and most people can't, you will have the federally mandated 80 hour COVID relief. That's two weeks plus um, seven days. Now I can tell you because both my parents have had COVID 
um, and they've been hospitalized with it, it has taken them more than three weeks to recover. When you add to that the, nece the necessity for going into quarantine every time you have exposed in a class and you add the vectors of exposure in a high school in particular, um, high schools are going to be breeding grounds for this. And as a side note, all the, all the kids darn infectious stuff is based on young kids. It's all based on kids under age of 10. Um, nobody, even the one Swiss study that, that Trump and them have, tr have trotted out to try to justify this and that the uh, American Association of Pediatricians justified their initial rulings on, have uh, believed that it's not contagious amongst people, you know, in puberty. That's, that's, that's nutty. Um, so it's going to run through high schools like rampant. They're going to take it home. And so, yeah, it's going to like, I, what, my frustration with this, frankly, even as a teacher is, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, the teachers are worried about themselves are worried about their families, but we're also frankly worried about the kids and these right wing mother, I, I won't swear, but have been, have been demonizing us like crazy. Yesterday I saw, um, Fox News run a woman on Laura Ingram show claiming that uh, the online education was really a massive sexual grooming scheme. So we're talking about what? Alex Jones levels. Yeah, we're <laughs> talking about Alex Jones level shit being run to demonize unions as sexual predators to conservative parents. Meanwhile, these parents will have the money to pull their kids out of school. They probably will. They'll get private students at online education for them anyway. But the poor families that these schools mostly serve and, uh, you know, the largely, they're largely black and brown, too, are going to be hit very, very hard. Um, and they have no say in this at all. I mean, I think I think I've, I've I think in my district alone, 15 percent of our parents do not speak English. They have no idea. This is they, they, they probably do not know the terms on which is being fault. How long do you think they're going to be able to just like just cram everybody into these vectors and just try to pretend that this like awful, I don't know, plague meat grinder can keep going. Like how long do you think? Until they might probably September. I think, I think they're trying to hold it off till the election. Frankly, that's my, that's my current belief, but I don't think it'll last that long. I think, um, I think, the health department, the, the local health departments will start pushing back. But you might have most of the concern, even the Republican governors, I mean, the Republican governors, interestingly, have been more responsive than rural state legislatures. And there's probably reasons for that. The rural districts are overrepresented, not just at the federal level, but also at the state levels. And the rural districts aren't at that much risk yet. All right. So in some ways, their concerns are not illegitimate for their populace. Mm -hmm. but they're subjecting us all to them. Um, and in certain areas, the governor has stepped in because, because even though they're still trying to force it to happen, they realize some of the, like some of the things like not making kids wear masks um, because of political expedience of local school districts would be so catastrophic that they have to take um, a risk assessment and, and take the political calculus hit. Ironically, states that are more Republican, like Utah, 
um, are actually more likely to do this than say Georgia and Florida, where these um, Republican governors are, are barely holding on to power. Um, and they don't wanna give any democratic politicians any victories whatsoever at the city level. And most of the cities are run by Democrats. So they're doing things like suing cities for mask ordinances and, and rewriting cities rules and taking away municipal control over school openings and stuff like that. Um, that's all political gamesmanship. And who knows how many people that will, I mean, if, if the death rates in these hotspots follow what happened in New York, even mitigating them down by 10 or 15% because of better treatments. And there are better treatments. We know, you know, COVID's now, we know what it does to the vascular center systems. They treat it with blood thinners and other, and you know, and redesivir and other things. Um, but you're going to see the mortality rate spike. And if it spikes in these places, the way it spiked in New York, even adjusting those numbers slightly down for more medical knowledge, you're looking at by October, between four, 400 and 600,000 dead. Even, you know, if you look at the, you know, the Republicans are like, well, you know, there'll be like 3.4% 3, 3 of the population die of fatality in the United States. Um, that's over a million people. Easily. Yeah. Um, and herd so immunity... Why, why do you think they're... Would, would also overrun the... It, this just sounds pointlessly stupid, and that because uh, some of this I think is is class war. Frankly, um, some of this I think is is um, national Republican policy right now is set by a man who wants to appease his base, even if it means he loses. Um, and in that sense, it even. Even rational capitalist calculus is not kicking in. Um, one of the interesting things about my state, for example, um, we know mass deniers are not a majority of the population. They're like between, depending on your state, between ten and and thirty five percent, right? Somewhere in there. Um, nationally, it's they're like eighteen percent of the population. Um, we know that a, a slim majority, but a majority want the schools closed and a lot of the people who don't want the schools closed admit that they don't want the schools closed basically because they have to go back to work there because of a mixture of placating the base um in the sun belt which is a largely petite bourgeois base um and the neither side wanting to give the other side a political victory in an election year they realize that things are about to get very bad. And maybe if you just push on through, the other side will be blamed for the results. All right. Now, the Democrats are not nearly as cavalier about this as the Republicans, but they're both doing it. Um, and you see that in the fact that like California relaxed its economy too early too, despite being very good in the beginning, and now is having southern and western state problems you know unlike the upper midwest um and and it is now having the same kinds of problems as like utah georgia 
Florida. Now, Newsom is more likely to do something about it, but it isn't entirely a partisan issue. It's when you try to open up the economy and how fast. Um, so what can, what can like parents and students do like in response to this? Like, what? Well, if you're a parent and student and you, if, if I was, a, if I was a parent right now, um, and I had anyone at risk in my family at all, I would take the online options that your school district probably offers you. However, knowing that most people who can do this are better off than the majority of people who are going to go to school. Um, if, if I was a teacher right now, I would get as much, even if I have to buy the PPE myself, I get the PPE. It is available. Um, if there are options to work online, attempt it. And, uh, you know, try to get the PTA and stuff to, to support you. And, and surprisingly, the PTA kind of has it. People aren't as irrational as it seemed. However, the immediate prospects are not good. Um, lieu of a general strike, which I don't think is going to happen. Um, I don't really see a way to force po politicians' hands on this. This, this is this is uh, not a super great issue. I mean, for one thing that a lot of working class people do need the childcare. Um, there's, there's no way right around that. Um, so, you know, you're kind of in a bind. Um, in the long run, this is also going to be bad. Not because, you know, I, like I said, I don't think like, like, you know, we're going to lose 20% of the teachers to death by COVID, um, even though 20% of the, uh, 20 to 25% of the teaching population is vulnerable to COVID. Um, one of the things that has not been discussed, and this is uh, um, the teaching workforce is very old because new teachers don't tend to stay more than three to five years. It's such a thankless job. And the cuts made in the first recession were never completely restored back to the budgets. I mean, they literally in my state were only getting restored, you know, this year. Um, we also have a problem with administrative capture, and I don't really have time to go into that, but basically you have cost disease in education, even in public education, where teachers are making less and less money, but it's becoming more and more expensive to educate a child um, in terms of tax dollars. And that is because of administrative drift and technological drift. Um, it eats a lot of money and people profiteer off of it. So because of that, you've already had the declining in the teaching population. After this, I will suspect that you're going to have major shortages in the teacher population in ways that aren't going to be reversible. Um, because a lot of people who can leave are going to, and no one in their right mind is going to come into this field. Um, and I think a lot of us who are like middle-aged are looking to get out now. And as soon as the economy recovers, we will. Um, and so you'll see further automation of the schools anyway. That's where this is headed. So even afterwards, the, the net thing will be bad. And I am completely sympathetic to the frustrations that parents feel over, you know, automated online education. It's not, it is, and except for very specific kind of technical coding things, not a great way to educate children. It has very low efficacy rates. I think the 
if you look at the pass fail rates for most online programs and in their initial installments, it's usually about 30% pass rates. And across the board, you've seen educational results declines in the past five years, and you've seen them stalled for the past 20. So, so what would the, say that the, there could be like a policy implemented by teachers that is actually like effectively addresses like all of the challenges facing them, like broad and particularly in these times, broad strokes, what would that look like? Like to give, if like, we really wanted to do it, we would double our teaching staff, double our teaching staff and get our classes down to 15 kids or less per, per class, give them proper PPE. It would still be traumatizing and unfortunate for them. There's no way this is not going to be. Um, but we would be able to provide educate, decent education and child care. We'd, um, and child care, frankly, which is what a lot of this is really about. Um, because we've structured our economy in a, in a way, and, and ironically, because it's always conservatives complaining about this, right? But we've structured an economy in a way that makes a traditional family unviable. <laughs> so the same people who are celebrating capitalism are the very same people making it impossible for a traditional family to be what it used to be, All right? Now, I'm not even saying that that traditional family was a good thing. And in many ways, it was very repressive and whatever, but you wouldn't, you did not have, you did not have the, the fact that the state literally has to intervene for basic childcare. All right, where does that leave us? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I could, I wish I could give you more hope. We, it, what what I what I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say here is just for parents of for parents right now, when your kids start getting sick, put as much pressure as you possibly can on local governments to not just close the schools, but to help support you so you can take care of your kids. All the stuff we passed in the initial COVID response is running out. The expanded unemployment, the stimulus, the, you know, the only things we have left is, I think it's 14 days at a third, it's, it's, no, yeah, it's two weeks at a third of your pay to take care of families paid for by the feds. And that's it. That's all you got. So you're going to have to put a ton of political pressure on these people. And I also don't take the bait on thinking teachers are just lazy. Um, I can tell you that actually designing effective online instruction is actually harder than in-person instruction. It's much harder and requires many skills that teachers don't necessarily have. Um, uh, Zoom is a very terrible way to educate. Um, uh, synchronous education is not a great way. Recording lectures in class and then, you know, shooting them out isn't a great way either. Um, but you know, if, if, if you're really worried about your kid, you can put them in an online program and put pressures on your state and federal government as best you can to actually do things to support this. Because if this follows the same disease patterns of other respiratory pandemics in the early 20th century, we ain't seen nothing yet. Like oh. as bad as it seems right now, this was supposed to be the downtime. It's going to get a lot worse. 
even places in Europe and places that are doing well enough to reopen their schools properly are probably going to have to roll and close them. They've had to in Asia several times over the summer. Um, I taught in Korea for many years. I used to teach teachers in Korea. And so like I follow their news. They've had to shut their schools down at least three times. Wow. Wow. You know, so, and, and they actually don't have, they have pretty high mask compliance. Wearing masks is culturally normal during flu season in, in Korea. I used to do it myself. And they, they do not have, you know, they have a slightly more, more, um, more certain kinds of like individualism is frowned upon. <laughs> and that's not always good, but right now, um, uh, like the kind of mask Yahoo nonsense, I like, that's 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 something you see almost everywhere in the world actually um it's not just in the united states but you don't really see it in asia um or at least not as badly and it's not given a whole lot of light of day and what's interesting about the united states that that i'm that i am trying to understand in terms of like economic analysis that i don't entirely get is uh anti-mass sentiment is is like it's in europe too like you know um there was a bus driver who was who was beaten brain dead by some anti-maskers in France, and mask compliance is super low in the UK. Um, so that's not unique to us. But what is unique to us is them being treated as a marginal political demographic and catered to. Um, and the best I can f figure is some petite bourgeois people think they can benefit from that but even that's limited because one of the things i've because I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about this so much obviously and running off the top of my head at 90 miles an hour but um one of the things that like here in uh in utah is the chamber of commerce is actually beginning to put to take stances out of line with trump and, and out of line with the mass denialist and, and stuff like that because they're worried about the businesses having to close and not surviving a second round of closures and what's, what's, what's crazy about this, even from an economic standpoint, and this is a case of like, of like intermediate economic madness, right? Um, is a lot of these groups played with the pressure to reopen the economy, but they weren't realizing the kind of social forces they were unleashing. Um, the kind of paranoia they were playing into to push the economy back open. And now they're having to deal with the fact that it's not going to stop where they need it to stop to stay back open. Yeah. Um, and that's something we've been seeing is that this is uh, on, on this show that the, these measures to try to force reopening have not worked according to plan at all. Right. And they're not sustainable without massive intervention. But, yeah. Right, which we're not doing at this point. Yeah. I so, mean, and what's ironic is we're actually going to take more of an economic hit for, for trying to do it this way than if we had just stayed quarantined for three or four weeks longer, like Europe did, frankly. I mean, that's, that's the irony at this point. This is, this is, this is a short-term versus long-term risk calculus and the United States is incentivizing short-term risk in a way that is going to be, even from a capitalist perspective, economically catastrophic. Wow. Uh, you want a perfect example of that? It doesn't have to do with, with, with teaching, but it's going to affect my, you know, my life as a teacher. A lot of my kids are going to be homeless in a week. Yeah. I and mean, that's... you know, 
know? Yeah, and like the numbers by September are expected to be like horrifying. 20 million without an intervention, 20 million minimum. And then that'll cause a second housing crash. You remember what the first one did? Oh yeah. I mean, so, so what's amazing to me about this and why I think other countries are now getting worried about the United States um, is because this one, once, if you have a housing crash, this won't stay internal to the U S and everybody else is already on, on economic pins and needles as it is. It'll ripple through the economy like madness. Um, and on top of that, it'll negate our ability to do um, proper pandemic. I mean, wh- how can you wow. send people to the hospital when they don't even have the money for homes? Like, yeah. like it's, it's, it's it's dim yeah well it's looking well um yeah it's just looking really grim and it's 